Our text this morning is from 1 John chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 6. You can find this on page 1021 in the Bibles uh, placed on the chairs in front of you. I'll give you a second to turn there if you'd like. First chapter, uh, First John chapter two, verses one through six. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Greetings to you. I am Pastor Ransom Kent, and I am so glad to be here this morning. We're continuing in our series on 1 John. Uh, we find ourselves uh, in 1 John 2, verses 1 through 6 this morning, as John just read to us. Um, the ancient version of John, not this one, what is he doing in 1 John? What did we learn last week? He's redrawing, retracing, he's retracing the uh, the Christian life, redrawn by John. Remember that. And so last week we saw uh, that the Christian life, as we saw in, in the, all of chapter 1 of 1 John, the Christian life, what is it? It is exposed to the perfect, loving light of God. The Christian life is exposed to the perfect, loving light of God. And what does that do? There's some internal, external things going on. First, it reminds us, it shows us the truth of our sin to who? Ourselves. Secondly, it exposes our sin. This is the scary one to other people because as we come to Christ, we don't come to Christ alone. We come to Christ together. And, and what does it mean to come to Christ? It means we're all sinners. That's what it means. And so as we come to Christ, as we come into the light, as we're called by God into the light, there is this exposure happening, but it's not just exposure. What is it? It's a cleansing of our sin. It's a forgiveness for our sin. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing, and so we should pursue it. And so ultimately, what does he say about orthodoxy? Remember, he's talking to a group of people who have been infiltrated by false teachers. What does orthodoxy do? True belief and true things brings joy. That's what happens. And so he continues in chapter 2, redrawing the Christian life, retracing the boundaries of the Christian life. And in these six verses, I'll tell you, it's a theological explosion. So the nerds in here, let's get excited. Okay, there's some good stuff happening. Um, but it's an opportunity to get deep into some theological things. And so what is John saying in these first six verses? In a sense, he is going right for the topic of obedience. So last week, what God has done, who Jesus is, it exposes us to our sin, which is a good thing. We're cleansed and we're forgiven. But not only that, what, who God is and what he has done and who Jesus is motivates us to not sin. That's what John is getting at. In other words, to put it in terms of the Christian life, what is the Christian life? It's resistance to sin. 
the trajectory of the Christian life is toward an increase in obedience. And so as we're drawn into the light by God, praise the Lord, it exposes our sin. That's a really important thing to happen because if we don't know about our sin, if we don't see our sin, what are we left in? Our sin. And so we're cleansed by God. But also, we see this power of God that leads us out of our sins. So John, if I was going to put it in, in, a, in a more practical terms, John is saying that obedience is one of the chief concerns of the daily Christian walk. Obedience. For two reasons. One, obedience is the logical result of following Christ. We can't follow Christ into disobedience because he doesn't lead us there. That's not how, where, where Jesus is leading us. But also, obedience, he wants us to understand this, this, this factor of obedience in our lives as Christians because obedience, according to John, is intimately tied to our assurance of faith. So obedience and what John talks about gives us comfort. It gives us confidence that we have been saved by God. And he wants us to get a few other things clear before he really gets to obedience. What we're going to do is we're going to pray, uh, and then we'll jump in to the text. Father in heaven, we have prayed quite a bit this morning, and I'm thankful for that. We are dependent wholly upon you. We're here to give you gratitude for what you have done. We're here to listen to your word. I am here to listen to your word, and I pray, Father, you would speak to us clearly in our hearts, not just on obedience, which is important, it's an essential to the Christian life, but also in assurance. May we leave this place confident in your salvation of our souls. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So John's going to get to obedience, but he wants to cover two things first. First and foremost, here's what John is saying. He is saying this, we are not saved by our obedience. We're not saved by our obedience. Look at verse 1. My little children, that's a, a term of endearment. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the goal here. But if anyone does sin, stop there. So how do we know that we are not saved by our sin? First and foremost, we still sin. We still sin. Uh, and I think it's helpful to give you some categories of sin. We all know about the sins of commission. Sins of commission, things we do on purpose. We see the right thing, we see the wrong thing, and we choose the wrong thing. Okay, that's what sin of commission is. We, we, we know what's right and wrong because God has revealed it to us, and what do we do instead? What we want. Now, there's this other thing called sins of omission, and these are the things we do all the time in ignorance. We sin all the time without knowing it. Uh, those of you who are in Sunday school this morning, we were in chapters 3 through 5 of uh, Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, and, and if you read those chapters this week, he uses an illustration. He said, if sin were the color blue in our lives, we wouldn't just do blue things once in a while. Everything we do, the thoughts that we have, the words that we say, the actions that we commit, even the good ones, everything in our life would be at least some hint or tint of blue. That's how sin works. It's not just things we do on purpose, not just things we do uh, out of the, the, the evil of our heart. No, everything, how we think about our relationships, how we think about politics, how we think about science, how we think about the, the, the latest fiction book we read, everything in our, our hearts and our minds is tainted with sin. Now, don't be, go looking for blue. It's not actually blue, right? But that, that's the idea. If we could see it visibly, 
everything in our life would be stained by it. I want to remind us, we're going back to this summer's sermon series. We're in the, in, uh, the, the Minor Prophets. Uh, there's a sermon on Micah, and in Micah 7, uh, it talks about how God, in patience and in loving kindness, he, what does he do? He, for his people, not the, the sins of the world, but for his people, he stomps all over their sin. And he takes pleasure in doing that. He, eventually, he's going to throw all of our sins in the sea. And he's pleased by that. So we have to remind ourselves, God is not pleased with us only when we're perfect. Because guess what? <laughs> doesn't happen all too often. He's pleased with us in the process of our sanctification as he makes us little by little, day by day, more like his son. God is pleased, delighted in that process. And so we know that we are not saved by sin. Uh, saved, well, obviously that, that's not a false statement. We're not saved by obedience because we still disobey. Secondly, we, we know that we are not saved, according to John, by our obedience because God has put a process in place to deal with our disobedience. Look at this, second phrase here. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. God has put a system in place to deal Christian with our disobedience. God has done that. Of course, we see Jesus Christ the righteous. We're going to unpack that here in just a moment. But, but who is the advocate? Who is the one standing before God? The word here is paraclete. That's a helper, a, a, an advocate, and not just any advocate. It's an advocate who's standing before a person of authority and arguing the case for someone else. Jesus is our advocate before Christ, before God. He's the spokesperson that we have. And why do we need an advocate? Why do we have an advocate? Because we need one. We need an advocate because we disobey. If we could stand before God on our own righteousness, why do we need an advocate? That's the question. Because we can't, and so we do. We cannot interact with God directly. And now, this is where this next phrase is so important. It's not just any old advocate. It's someone in particular. It is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, this phrase is so specific, and it's so loaded by John. We have to understand some things. Jesus being righteous is essential to our salvation. Jesus being righteous is essential to our salvation. You see, fellowship with God, the word righteousness means to be in right relationship. If you are righteous with somebody, there is absolutely nothing disrupting that relationship. There's nothing in the way. And so what we have to understand is because we're humans and because we have even one sin in our past, that relationship has been poisoned. It's been poisoned. And so the fact that Jesus is perfectly righteous is essential. The scriptures teach us, Romans 3, as it is written, this is really good, positive thinking. If you're here for some positive notes, keep listening past this. All right, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And Paul's talking about himself in that sentiment. In Romans 7, he says, deliver me from this body of sin. And so if we are not righteous... 
If we can't have that direct one-to-one with God, and that means for us to be saved, it has to be given to us in some capacity for free. And so we go again to Romans, Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so salvation is a gift, church. That's, what, that's why it, 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 for him to say Jesus Christ the righteous, it's all of these things and more. John is saying a lot in those four English words. Of course, he didn't speak in English. And so we, we have this gift of salvation. We haven't earned it. The wages of our sin is what? Death. But what we have been given for free in Jesus Christ is righteousness, is salvation. And it's not just given willy-nilly. Righteousness for you, righteousness for you, right? Um, there's, again, God has a system. We're going back to Romans. Listen to this. It's very interesting. He's talking about Abraham, and he, he's making a case for why Abraham didn't earn his righteousness He says this, now to the one who works, meaning works for their salvation, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Meaning, if we think we can earn our salvation, if we think we can can be saved by our obedience, it's not a free gift. It's actually your wages. You're being paid for something you did. And so he continues, and to the one who does not work, meaning for their salvation, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. God has a process for dealing with our unrighteousness, for dealing with our sin, for using Jesus, the righteous, to get us and back into relationship with him. And so the question might be for some, like, well, how do I do that? What does that mean? My faith is counted as righteousness. Again, back to Romans, Paul makes it very clear. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, guess what? You will be saved. What is not in that list? Obey perfectly. Obey perfectly is not in that list. Confess with your mouth. Say Jesus is Lord publicly and believe in your heart that God did something to give you the free gift of salvation. That's all packed right in there into Jesus Christ the righteous. And so as we read that, as we read Jesus Christ, the righteous, this should be ultimate comfort for us, church. This should be something that brings us joy and confidence and comfort. Why? Because it says in 2 Corinthians, he made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, he's perfectly righteous to be sin, so that what? We might be the righteousness of God. All of the things we just talked about, they're aimed at one thing, bringing us unrighteous people into right relationship with God. Praise the Lord that he's done that through Jesus Christ. So the first thing John wants us to see, you are not saved by obedience. He's talking about obedience. He wants you to put obedience in its right place. It's not how you earn salvation. Next, he wants you to know how you do earn, how you do get salvation. We are saved by Jesus Christ. Verse two, speaking of Jesus Christ, the righteous, here's a description He is the propitiation of our sins. Very common word. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Pastoral challenge, use propitiation in a sentence at work this week. Or with your children, go for it. Um, What does that mean? What is propitiation? Complete sacrificial atonement. Complete sacrificial atonement. You see, sin builds up 
holy and just wrath. We've talked about this all summer, right? When we do wrong things, God has, as a just God and a holy God, has to punish those things. That's how it works. If he just said, ah, forget about it, he wouldn't be just, he wouldn't be God. And so his, his wrath is stored up against sin. And so there was this wrath, even for the people of God, that had to be taken care of. And so what did they do? Jesus Christ came. We just read about it. He became sin. He took that full, awful, hot punishment of God's wrath on himself in the place of those who have faith in him. And so what is he saying? This, this word, this strange word to us, this word is so full of meaning. It means that, that, that Jesus Christ for the church has paid fully for their sins. That's how we are saved by believing in the thing that Jesus has already done for us. And you can hear the man who wrote John 3.16, you can hear the love of his, uh, uh, his love for the lost as he writes this next phrase, and not only our sin, but for the sins of the whole world. What is he saying? This is not universalism. What he's saying is the gospel is for all kinds of people, from all kinds of backgrounds, from every corner of the world, and this is the hard part, that have committed every kind of sin. That's who the gospel is for. Jesus Christ paid the price for all kinds of sins, for all kinds of people. This is not just for Jews. This is not just for people in Asia Minor. This is not just for Americans. It's for anybody and everybody who will have it. I love this because in two verses... (laughs) This is not comparing, but it sort of is. John covers in these two short sentences what Paul took a whole book in Romans to talk about. Just these phrases, it's everything about who Jesus is, what he has done, and what that means for you and me every day. It's the whole of salvation. We're saved by the work of God, past, present, and future, he's telling us. Our sin debt has been completely canceled if you're in Christ propitiation. And when we do sin, our relationship with God is restored. We have, a, we have an advocate who is righteous. And not only that, but we too, because we're in Christ, are reckoned as righteous. All of that in just 1 John 2, 1 and 2. And so hear this this morning. Despite and, and, and church, I think we need to rehydrate some of these truths in our life. This is the most amazing thing we could hear. This is the most incredible truth that's ever been uttered. Listen to this. Despite our awful unworthiness, despite it, because we have that, God in his love, by his grace, in his mercy, saved us anyway. Saved us anyway. We need to remember these things and be amazed by these things again. Salvation is a free gift because God is loving and merciful and generous. He's prodigal. Remember what that means? It means he spends lavishly on us. And so that's the context. John is saying we need to understand this first. We're not saved by obedience. We are saved by Christ. So now let's talk about obedience. That's the context in which he's bringing up obedience. And so here's what he is saying in the next few verses. As God works in our life, as God works in our life, past, present, future, think of all the things God has done. Those are all things he's doing in our lives, has done in our lives. As God works in our life, we change. (laughs) 
As God works in our life, we change. That's what John is saying. In the next four verses, he talks about obedience four times. Take a look at me with, uh, with me at verses three through six. He says in verse three, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So when we know God, when we know what he has done, when we know him personally in a relationship, what happens after that? We follow his commandments. Knowing God comes first. When God works in our life, we change. There's an order to things here. Knowing the lengths of God's love, knowing what he has done, understanding what he has done. Again, orthodoxy, right? Who is Jesus? What has he done? Who is God? What does that do? It incubates obedience in us. It develops obedience in us as we see the miraculous things he's done for us. He says the same thing in verse 4, but in the negative. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him or her. Make sure we include the ladies this morning. Um, Listen, disobedience, think about this concept. Disobedience is always, first and foremost, the suppression of the truth. Think back to Adam and Eve. Think back to Adam and Eve. Where did their sin start? They suppressed the truth. Now think back to Ransom this morning or whatever your name is this morning. When we disobey on purpose, what do we do? We suppress the truth that God is God and that he is in charge and that he loves us and he has his best in mind for us. And we say, I'm on my own. I got this. Disobedience always begins with the suppression of the truth. And so acceptance of the truth is always the beginning of obedience. Goes without saying. As we accept who God is and what he has done, what does it do? It changes us. It grows obedience in our hearts. As we move to verse 5, it's a great image. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God, is perfected. This word perfected is in the passive tense, which means it's being done to us. So the, the way it's described in, in, a, in a textbook would be like the horse tramples the ground. The ground has no really role other than being trampled by the horse. We are being formed by God's love. We are the ground in that analogy. And so what is John doing? He's pointing out the effect that the love of God has for us as we are, con- we are conformed to the word of God as we are formed by God's love. Do you see? As we are formed by what God has done for us and we let that sink in and God's power of his spirit is working that into our hearts, we are conformed to something else. We change. In the end of verse five and verse six, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, which means to continue in him, ought to walk in the same way in which we walked. So what is John saying? He's saying the confession of our mouth, if we say Jesus is Lord, that ought to be reflected, it it ought to match the trajectory of our walk. To match the trajectory of our walk. It is good, let me just say this, it is good if these words convict us. It's good. Remember, God's not rubbing our nose in it. Well, look what you did again. He's saying, look, here's your sin. I've come to cleanse you. I've come to forgive you. He delights 
in this process of us feeling like, oh my goodness, that's not me, I want that. And, and you know what God says? I love you. I love you. And so when God works in our life, we change. And that change should bring us comfort, should bring us assurance. What John is saying is, listen, if God works, this is very logical, very linear. If God works in your life, you're going to change. What is that change? That change is increased obedience motivated by love. God's love for us. And, and if, if we see that, if we see that in our life where God convicts us of our sin, remember, part of it is bringing us into the light. We will know we sin as a part of God working in us. And, and as we, we confess those sins to God and to each other, and as, as we resist sin in our life, these are all amazingly good things. Why? Because they're fruit of God's presence in our lives. Assurance. And we know that John wants us to get assurance from this because twice in those four verses, he uses the phrase, by this we know. By this we know. And so it, it tells us that John is not piling on shoulds. <laughs> He's not piling on shoulds. He's not piling on a guilt trip as if he's saying, listen, <laughs> You better obey, or God's not going to love you. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying God has and does and did and continues to love you. So let's respond to that. If he's piling on anything, it's God's love. That's what he's piling on. And so he does that, that we what? I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. He's telling us about God's love, reminding us how we're saved, that we may be glad in our obedience and confident in our salvation. That's what John wants. The obedience that brings assurance is a response to God's love. Church, we too often think about obedience in unhealthy ways. I do. We think if we don't obey, God's going to smite us on the mountainside. There's your Lord of the Rings reference for the day, okay? If we don't obey, God's going to smite us. We're waiting for the hammer to drop. <gasps> that's, not, that's not what this is talking about. That's not even real obedience. What is that? It's being a slave to something. We, we, we also think that, that maybe if we obey enough, things will go well for us. And so what are we doing if we're obeying to either earn our salvation or earn our comfort? We're working for God. Paul addresses that in Romans 4. That's being an employee. Do you obey your boss? Sure you do. But if you don't, you get fired, right? God's love and his gracious salvation, church, it's the only truth that actually sets us free. Freedom. Freedom from sin. Why did God do all these things for us? So that we might, not of our own work, be free from the shackles of sin. The government isn't our greatest enemy. That, that, that relative that we can't ever find reconciliation with, it's not our greatest enemy. 
You think of all the things that we think are great. They're not. The sin inside of our hearts is our greatest enemy, and Jesus Christ has dealt it the death blow. That is freeing. That is freeing, absolutely freeing. So I say this morning that the grace of God in his saving sinners, here's what I think it's calling us to. Here's what I think it's a good way to summarize. That grace of God, brothers and sisters, it's what makes it worth giving up everything in our lives, everything in our lives to follow and obey Christ. Everything. Well, Ransom, that seems like a pretty costly formula. I was talking with someone this week, and they reminded me of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's take. Uh, he, he talks about this idea, the cost of grace, the cost of grace. And so let me finish up by reading this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You can't say it much better than the greats. And so he says this. He's talking about grace, the grace of God in saving sinners. Hear this. It is costly because it calls us to discipleship. But it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. Do you see where he's going with this? Does it cost us everything? Yes. But what do we get in return? Something that's more than everything. It is costly because it costs people their lives, but it is grace because it thereby makes them live. The things we give up, church, they're not really life. If we're giving it up to follow Christ, it's not really life. We're giving it up to follow someone who gives us eternal life. It is costly because it condemns sin. It is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, grace is costly because it was costly to God, because it cost God the life of God's son. He quotes scripture and he says, you were bought with a price. And then he says, and because nothing can be cheap to us, which is costly to God. Above all, it is grace because the life of God's son was not too costly for God to give in order to make us live. Praise the Lord. It's costly, but man, it is grace. And I think this morning we have an opportunity to kind of do a covenant renewal, if you will, to, to, to check in with God and recommit ourselves to who Jesus is and what God has done. And it, has to, it takes place through the Lord's Supper. It takes place through the Lord's Supper. What does the Lord's Supper do? It reminds us of what God has done. He didn't get our permission to do it. He didn't say, hey, what do you think about? No, he did it for us. He came as a human. He lived a perfect life. He earned his own righteousness, and he used that righteousness not for his own benefit, but to die on the cross, take our sin, and give us that thing he earned. He did that for us. It's already done. It's in the past. And so what does that do? It gives us an opportunity to confess our sins, that internal, external thing. We can see our sin. We can see how we contributed to that cost. We can confess it by coming and eating the bread and drinking the wine or the juice. And so this morning, as we come and we remember and we remember that it was done for us, the broken body, the shed blood, as we confess our sins and say, I need that salvation because I don't have it inside myself, as we do all those things, it's an opportunity every week, 
every day, in fact, to recommit ourselves to following Christ. So this morning, if you're like me and you need assurance, here's what we should do. First, confess our sin. Confess our sin. After remembering what God has done, we confess our sin in confidence, knowing that he has said, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and I will forgive them. That's the first step. The second thing is you say, Lord, I want to, rem- I want to resist sin in my life. And your prayer as you eat the bread and drink the juice together as a family is, Father, empower me to resist. Empower me to follow. That's assurance. That's what John says. As we see what God has done and we see change in our lives, that is assurance. And so let us come this morning and participate in that. And so already we've said this this morning, what does it mean to come? It means you're saying internally, God, there are things in my life that are not up to your standards. They're not up to your standards. We're also saying to other people, guess what? I'm a sinner. It's an exposure to come forward this morning. But also we're saying it's not so much about me, it's everything about Jesus Christ. We accept his cleansing and his forgiveness and his assurance. And so you come this morning because you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he's the only way for you to be saved. You've made that profession, you've been baptized, you're welcomed, you're invited in in love to the table. For those of you that either do not believe those things Or there is a sin in your life that you refuse to let go. You refuse to say, I'm not going to resist that because I like it too much. The Bible makes it clear, do not come and eat. Do not come and eat. And so we echo that not because we're trying to exclude you, because the scriptures say it's not good for you to do that. So this morning we're going to take just a few moments. I would encourage us all, myself included, to renew our covenant with God, renew our reminder of who he is, what he has done, who we are, what we do against him, and what all that means, and let us recommit to obedience and following of Christ in love. I'll gather us back together in a prayer of blessing in a moment. Father in heaven, We come before you now, Lord, humbled by all that you have done for us. We did nothing beforehand for you to zero in on our need. We did nothing to earn, to catch your eye. We did nothing and can do nothing to be back in right relationship with you other than flop wholly in everything that we are and everything that we have onto Jesus Christ. That is not work, that is faith. It's actually the absence of work. It's saying, I can't do it. And Jesus Christ has already done it. I pray this morning, through my faltered words, through my words and thoughts that are tainted blue, that you would bring your people back to yourself The Christian life, it exposes who we are. Praise the Lord, because in our exposure, we are cleansed and forgiven. It also calls us in the love of God and what he has done to resist sin. And I pray that this would be a body of people that does exactly that. Not in our own power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we come to the table to receive that power, that grace. So as we eat the bread this morning, as we drink the liquid 
the juice or the wine, I pray that we feel bolstered and empowered by the Holy Spirit to resist temptation and resist sin. We love you because you loved us first. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the one whom it cost everything for you to give us grace. Amen.